Section 24 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Michael Faraday, Part 2. Let us now briefly examine Faraday's many remaining discoveries and inventions. Though none of these were equal to his great discovery, yet many were exceedingly valuable. Some were almost immediately utilized, some waited many years for utilization, and some have never yet been utilized. We must avoid, however, falling into the common mistake of holding in little esteem those parts of Faraday's work that did not immediately result either in the production of practical apparatus, or in valuable applications in the arts and sciences, or those which have not even yet proved fruitful. Some discoveries and devices are so far ahead of the times in which they are produced that several lifetimes often pass before the world is ready to utilize them. Like immature or unripe fruit, they are apt to die an untimely death, and it sometimes curiously happens that several generations after their birth, a subsequent inventor or discoverer, in honest ignorance of their prior existence, offers them to the world as absolutely new. The times being ripe, they pass into immediate and extended public use, so that the later inventor is given all the credit of an original discovery, and the true first and original inventor remains unrecognized. We will first examine Faraday's discovery of the relations existing between light and magnetism. Though the discovery has not as yet borne fruit in any direct practical application, yet it has proved of immense value from a theoretical standpoint. In this investigation, Faraday proved that light vibrations are rotated by the action of a magnetic field. He employed the light of an ordinary argand lamp and polarized it by reflection from a glass surface. He caused this polarized light to pass through a plate of heavy glass made from a borosilicate of lead. Under ordinary circumstances, this substance exerted no unusual action on light, but when it was placed between the poles of a powerful electromagnet and the light was passed through it in the same direction as the magnetic flux, the plane of polarization of the light was rotated in a certain direction. Faraday discovered that other solid substances besides glass exert a similar action on a beam of polarized light. Even opaque solids like iron possess this property. Kerr has proved that a beam of light passed through an extremely thin plate of highly magnetic iron has its plane of polarization slightly rotated. Faraday showed that the power of rotating a beam of polarized light is also possessed by some liquids. But what is most interesting, in both solids and liquids, is that the degree of the rotation of the light depends on the direction in which the magnetism is passing, and can therefore be changed by changing the polarity of the electromagnet. Faraday did not seem to thoroughly understand this phenomenon. He spoke as if he thought the lines of magnetic force had been rendered luminous by the light rays, for he announced his discovery in a paper entitled Magnetization of Light and the Illumination of the Lines of Magnetic Force. Indeed, this discovery was so far ahead of the times that it was not until a later date that the results were more fully developed, first by Kelvin and subsequently by Clerk Maxwell. In 1865, two years before Faraday's death, Maxwell proposed the electromagnetic theory of light, showing that light is an electromagnetic disturbance. He pointed out that optical as well as electromagnetic phenomena required a medium for their propagation, and that the properties of this medium appeared to be the same for both. Moreover, the rate at which light travels is known by actual measurement, 
The rate at which electromagnetic waves are propagated can be calculated from electrical measurements, and these two velocities exactly agree. Faraday's original experiment as to the relation between light and magnetism is thus again experimentally demonstrated, and Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light now resting on experimental fact, optics becomes a branch of electricity. A curious consequence was pointed out by Maxwell as a result of his theory, namely that a necessary relation exists between opacity and conductivity, since, as he showed, electromagnetic disturbances could not be propagated in substances which are conductors of electricity. In other words, if a light is an electromagnetic disturbance, all conducting substances must be opaque, and all good insulators transparent. This we know to be the fact. Metallic substances, the best of conductors, are opaque, while glass and crystals are transparent. Even such apparent exceptions as vulcanite, an excellent insulator, fall into the law, since as Graham Bell has recently shown, this substance is remarkably transparent to certain kinds of radiant energy. In 1778, Brugmans of Leyden noticed that if a piece of bismuth was held near either pole of a strong magnet, repulsion occurred. Other observers noticed the same effect in the case of antimony. These facts appear to have been unknown to Faraday, who in 1845, by employing powerful electromagnets, rediscovered them, and in addition showed that practically all substances possess the power of being attracted or repelled when placed between the poles of sufficiently powerful magnets. By placing slender needles of the substances experimented on between the poles of powerful horseshoe magnets, he found that they were all either attracted like iron, coming to rest with their greatest length extending between the poles, or like bismuth, were apparently repelled by the poles, coming to rest at right angles to the position assumed by iron. He regarded the first class of substances as attracted, and the second class as repelled, and called them respectively paramagnetic and diamagnetic substances. In other words, paramagnetic substances like iron came to rest axially, extending from pole to pole, and diamagnetic substances like bismuth equatorially, extending transversely between the poles. He reserved the term magnetic substances to cover the phenomena of both para and diamagnetism. He communicated the results of this investigation to the Royal Society in a paper on the magnetic condition of all matter, on December 18, 1845. The properties of paramagnetism and diamagnetism are not possessed by solids only, but exist also in liquids and gases. When experimenting with liquids, they were placed in suitable glass vessels, such as watch crystals, supported on pole pieces properly shaped to receive them. Under these circumstances, paramagnetic liquids, such as salts of iron or cobalt, dissolved in water, underwent curious contortions in shape, the tendency being to arrange the greater part of their mass in the direction in which the flux passed, namely directly between the poles. Diamagnetic liquids, such as solutions of salts of bismuth and antimony, in a similar manner, arrange the greater part of their mass in positions at right angles to this direction, or equatorially. At first, Faraday attributed the repulsion of diamagnetic substances to a polarity, separate and distinct from ordinary magnetic polarity, for which he proposed the name diamagnetic polarity. He believed that when a diamagnetic substance is brought near to the north pole of a magnet, a north pole was developed in its approached end, and therefore repulsion occurred. He afterwards rejected this view, though it has been subsequently adopted by Weber and Tyndall, the latter of whom conducted an extended series of experiments on the subject. 
The majority of physicists, however, at the present time do not believe in the existence of a diamagnetic polarity. They point out that the apparent repulsion of diamagnetic substances is due to the fact that they are less paramagnetic than the oxygen of the air in which they are suspended. During this investigation, Faraday observed some phenomena that led him to a belief in the existence of another form of force, distinct from either paramagnetic or diamagnetic force, which he called the magnacrystallic force. He had been experimenting with some slender needles of bismuth, suspending them horizontally between the poles of an electromagnet. Taking a few of these cylinders at random from a greater number, he was much perplexed to find that they did not all come to rest equatorially, as well-behaved bars of diamagnetic bismuth should do. Though, if subjected to the action of a single magnetic pole, they did show this diamagnetic character by their marked repulsion. After much experimentation, he ascribed this phenomenon to the crystalline condition of the cylinder. By experimenting with carefully selected groups of crystals of bismuth, he believed he could trace the cause of the phenomenon to the action of a force which he called the magnacrystallic force. Extended experiments carried on by Plücker on the influence of magnetism on crystalline substances led him to believe that a close relation exists between the ultimate forms of the particles of matter and their magnetic behavior. This subject is as yet far from being fully understood. There was another series of investigations made by Faraday between the years 1831 and 1840 that has been wonderfully utilized and may properly be ranked among his great discoveries. We allude to his researches on the laws which govern the chemical decomposition of compound substances by electricity. The fact that the electric current possesses the power of decomposing compound substances was known as early as 1800, when Carlisle and Nicholson separated water into its constituent elements by the passage of a voltaic current. Davy, too, in 1806, had delivered his celebrated discourse on some chemical agencies of electricity, and in 1807 had announced his great discovery of the decomposition of the fixed alkalis. Faraday showed that the amount of chemical action produced by electricity is fixed and definite. In order to be able to measure the amount of this action, he invented an instrument which he called a voltameter, or a volta-electrometer. It consisted of a simple device for measuring the amount of hydrogen and oxygen gases liberated by the passage of an electric current through water acidulated with sulfuric acid. He showed by numerous experiments that the decomposition affected is invariably proportional to the amount of electricity passing, that variations in the size of the electrodes, in the pressure, or in the degree of dilution of the electrolyte had nothing to do with the result, and that, therefore, a voltmeter could be employed to determine the amount of electricity passing in a given circuit. He also demonstrated that when a current is passed through different electrolytes, compound substances decomposed by the passage of electricity, the amount of the decompositions are chemically equivalent to each other. The extent of Faraday's work in the electrochemical field may be judged by considering some of the terms he proposed for its phenomena, most of which, with some trifling exceptions, are still in use. It was he who gave the name electrolysis to decomposition by the electric current. He also proposed to call the wires or conductors connected with the battery or other electric sources, the electrodes, naming that one which was connected to the positive terminal, the anode, and that one connected with the negative terminal, the cathode. He called the separate atoms or groups of atoms into which bodies undergoing electrolysis are separated the radicals, or ions, and named the electropositive ions, which appear at the cathodes, the cations, and the electronegative radicals, which appear at the anodes, the anions. 
There were many other researches made by Faraday, such as his experiments on destructive electric discharges, his investigations of the electric eel, his many researches on the phenomena both of frictional electricity and of the voltaic pile, his investigations on the contact and chemical theories of the voltaic pile, and those on chemical decomposition by frictional electricity. These are but some of the more important of them. Those we have already discussed will, however, amply suffice to show the value of his work. Rather than take up any others, let us inquire what influence, if any, the various groups of discoveries we have already discussed have exerted on the electric arts and sciences in our present time. What practical results have attended these discoveries? What actual useful commercial machines have been based on them? What useful processes or industries have grown out of them? And first, as to actual commercial machines. These researches not only led to the production of dynamo electric machines, but in point of fact, Faraday actually produced the first dynamo. A dynamo electric machine, as is well known, is a machine by means of which mechanical energy is converted into electrical energy by causing conductors to cut through or be cut through by lines of magnetic force. Or briefly, it is a machine by means of which electricity is readily obtained from magnetism. Faraday's invention of the first dynamo is interesting because at the same time he made the invention, he solved a problem which up to his time had been the despair of the ablest physicists and mathematicians. This was the phenomenon of Arago's rotating disk. It was briefly as follows. If a copper disk be rotated above a magnet, the needle tends to follow the plate in its rotation. Or if a copper plate be placed at rest above or below an oscillating magnet, it tends to check its oscillations and bring the needle quickly to rest. Faraday investigated these phenomena and soon discovered that a copper disk rotated below two magnet poles had electric currents generated in it, which flowed radially through the disk between its circumference and center. By placing one end of a conducting circuit on the axis of the disk and the other on its circumference, he succeeded in drawing off a continuous electric current generated from magnetism and thus produced the first dynamo. This was in 1831. Faraday produced many other dynamos besides this simple disc machine. Although the disc dynamo in its original form was impracticable as a commercial machine, yet it was not only the forerunner of the dynamo, but was, in point of fact, the first machine ever produced that is entitled to be called a dynamo. He generously left to those who might come after him the opportunity to avail themselves of his wonderful discovery. I have rather, however, he says, been desirous of discovering new facts and new relations dependent on magneto-electric induction than of the exalting force of those already obtained, being assured that the latter would find their development hereafter. How profoundly prophetic! Could the illustrious investigator see the hundreds of thousands of dynamos that are today in all parts of the world engaged in converting millions of horsepower of mechanical energy into electric energy? he would appreciate how marvelously his successors have exalted the force of some of the effects he had so ably shown the world how to obtain. Faraday lived to see his infant dynamo, the first of its kind, developed into a machine not only sufficiently powerful to maintain electric arc lights, but also into a form sufficiently practicable to be continuously engaged in producing such light in one of the lighthouses on the English coast. Holmes produced such a machine in 1862, or some years before Faraday's death. It was installed under the care of the Trinity House at the Dungeness Lighthouse in June 1862 and continued in use for about 10 years. When this machine was shown to Faraday by its inventor, the veteran philosopher remarked, I gave you a baby and you bring me a giant. 
The alternating current transformer is another gift of Faraday to the commercial world. As is well known, this instrument is a device for raising or lowering electric pressure. The name is derived from the fact that the instrument is capable of taking in at one pressure the electric energy supplied to it and giving it out at another pressure, thus transforming it. Faraday produced the first transformer during his investigations on voltaic current induction. The modern alternating current transformer, though differing markedly in minor details from Faraday's primitive instrument, yet in general details is essentially identical with it. The enormous use of both step-up and step-down transformers, transformers which respectively induce currents of higher and of lower electromotive forces in their secondary coils that are passed through their primaries, shows the great practical value of this invention. The wonderful growth of the commercial applications of alternating currents during the past few decades would have been impossible without the use of the alternating current transformer. It is an interesting fact that it was not in the form of the step-down alternating current transformer that Faraday's discovery of voltaic current induction was first utilized, but in the form of a step-up transformer, or what was then ordinarily called an induction coil. As early as 1842, Masson and Bruget constructed an induction coil by means of which minute sparks could be obtained from the secondary in vacuo. In 1851, Ruhmkorff constructed an induction coil so greatly improved by the careful insulation of its secondary circuit that he could obtain from it torrents of long sparks in ordinary air. The Ruhmkorff induction coil has in late years been greatly improved both by Tesla and Elihu Thomson, who, separately and independently of each other, have produced excellent forms of high-frequency induction coils. Induction coils have long been in use for purposes of research and in later years have been employed in the production both of the Röntgen rays used in the photography of the invisible and the electromagnetic waves used in wireless telegraphy. Röntgen's discovery was published in 1895. It was rendered possible by the prior work of Geisler and Crookes on the luminous phenomena produced by the passage of electric discharges through high vacua in glass tubes. Röntgen discovered that the invisible rays, or radiation, emitted from certain parts of a high vacuum tube when high-tension discharges from induction coils were passing, possessed the curious property of traversing certain opaque substances as readily as light does glass or water. He also discovered that these rays were capable of exciting fluorescence in some substances, that is, of causing them to emit light and become luminous, and that these rays, like the rays of light, were capable of affecting a photographic plate. From these properties, two curious possibilities arose, namely to see through opaque bodies and to photograph the invisible. Röntgen called these rays X, or unknown rays. They are now almost invariably called by the name of their distinguished discoverer. Let us briefly investigate how it is possible both to see and to photograph the invisible. Shortly after Röntgen's discovery, Edison, with that wonderful power of finding practical applications for nearly all discoveries, had invented the fluoroscope, a screen covered with a peculiar chemical substance that becomes luminous when exposed to the Röntgen rays. Suppose now between the rays and such a screen could be interposed a substance opaque to ordinary light, as, for example, the human hand. The tissues of the hand, such as the flesh and the blood, permit the rays to readily pass through them, but the bones are opaque to the rays and therefore oppose their passage. Consequently, the screen, instead of being uniformly illumined, will show shadows of bones, so that, to an eye examining the screen, 
it will seem as though it were looking through the flesh and blood directly at the bones. In a similar manner, if a photographic plate be employed instead of the screen, a distinct photographic picture will be obtained. Both the fluoroscope and the photographic camera have proved an invaluable aid to the surgeon, who can now look directly through the human body and examine its internal organs, and so be able to locate such foreign bodies as bullets and needles in its various parts, or make correct diagnoses of fractures or dislocations of the bones, or even examine the action of such organs as the liver and heart. About 1886, Hertz discovered that if a small laden jar is discharged through a short and simple circuit, provided with a spark gap of suitable length, a series of electromagnetic waves are set up, which moving through space in all directions are capable of exciting in a similar circuit effects which can be readily recognized, although the two circuits are at fairly considerable distances apart. Here we have a simple basic experiment in wireless telegraphy, which briefly considered consists of means whereby oscillations or waves set up in free spaces by means of disruptive discharges are caused to traverse space and produce various effects in suitably constructed receptive devices that are operated by the waves as they impinge on them. At first, a doubt was expressed by eminent scientific men as to the practicability of successfully transmitting wireless messages through long distances, since these waves, traveling in all directions, would soon become too attenuated to produce intelligible signals. But when it was shown from theoretical considerations that these waves when traversing great distances are practically confined to the space between the Earth's surface and the upper rarefied strata of the atmosphere, the possibility of long-distance wireless telegraphic transmission was recognized. To increase the distance, it was only necessary either to increase the energy of the waves at the transmitting station or to increase the delicacy of the receiving instruments, or both. It has been but a short time since both the scientific and the financial worlds were astounded by the actual transmissions of intelligible wireless signals across the Atlantic, and the name of Marconi will go down to posterity as the one who first accomplished this great feat. The principal limit to the distance of transmission lies in the delicacy of the receiving instruments. The most sensitive are those in which a telephone receiver forms a part of the receiving apparatus. The almost incredibly small amount of electric energy required to produce intelligible speak in an ordinary bell telephone receiver nearly passes belief. The work done in lifting such an instrument from its hook to the ear of the listener would, if converted into electric energy, be sufficient to maintain an audible sound in a telephone for 240,000 years. Even extremely attenuated waves may therefore produce audible signals in such a receiver. End of section 24.